How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 256. 256? Suppose we're given a computer, Zeke, with a 16 virtual address and a page size of 256 bytes. Is that hackers? No. It's not. What is it? It's uh, from a little film that uh, we might cover soon, might talk about, called The Social Network. Oh, yeah. That's actually the whole 256 bytes. That's mm-hmm. said a, a number of times yeah. throughout the film. It's an 8-bit That's computer. The, uh, the Bill Gates character says it. The lecturer says it before then. So, yeah. I'm like, man, that must have just been a thing in 2003, 2004. Yeah, some of the earliest computers were 8-bit systems. Mm. So, um, yeah. And in binary, that only gets you up to the value of 256. You know what? I feel like I should know more of this as a computer nerd. As a digital technologies teacher, I have to know oh, this. Fair so. enough. <laughs> um, I just like to build the PCs, love-hate relationships. But um, I still want to build someone else's PC. Because it would, I would feel... I don't know. I just like the feeling of being like an engineer. Even though I'm a horrible engineer. Well, don't put yourself down like that, Jake. Aww. See, that's, you're also being a teacher right now, but <laughs> trying to prompt me back up. How, how are you, Zeke? How are you doing? I'm good. It was the last day of school today like for kids. Oh, wonderful. So the kids are gone. We're, we're still there for the next two days, yep. but no kids. Excellent. So, um, pretty chill. Pretty mm. chill. Um, it was a long day for mm. a last day, but yeah. Um, I'm glad we're doing a film like this, which is a very easygoing Mm. film but nevertheless a film that almost feels long overdue in a sense well said well speaking of this film we're Mm. talking about of course john carney's begin again jake do you have any fun trivia facts from that film of the week i do so john carney's original title for this film which i think has been in development since like i guess 2009 2010 maybe he had a script before that um was can a song save your life which is I, I can see that as, like, the tagline of the film, like, underneath on the poster. It's a very weird title, I feel like, so it makes sense why they changed it. And specifically because it, it puts more emphasis on this one plot beat in the film that is very underexplored in the film, and I think I'm glad that it's underexplored, um, is the the line that Dan has Mark Ruffalo's character to Kira Knightley, where he says, like, your song, I was going to basically kill myself, and then I heard your song. And I feel like it would have been very easy for the story to become like super dramatic, dramatized around that aspect of the story, and I'm glad it doesn't. Sure. So I'm glad they changed the title because of that. What no, about you, Zeke? Very fair, and um, we can obviously explore it in the uh, second part of the show. Yes. No surprise that um, obviously this is a musical-based film. You know, it's a John Carney film. Mm. Um, it is interesting to see that Kira Knightley actually learned to play guitar for the role, which is obviously very normal mm. for actors to do this. What I did find quite funny, though, is her husband, um, who is a musician, James Wrighton, offered his help. But according to Knightley, his lessons were disastrous and almost led to divorce and oh, murder. What, what? 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 Murder? I think it was said in a joking okay. context. Oh, my goodness me. That, um especially cuz there is a love dynamic in the in the film um, between multiple there characters there is some complicated love um, not triangles but love scenarios i guess you can call them yeah it's going to be an interesting one to talk about uh hell that's before dramatic we ju- before we jump into that jake mm. have you caught anything in the last week i caught a few things 
Um, as as promised, I'm I'm trying to catch at least one film off my 100 film poster. Sure. Before we wrap up, so I think there's four left after this one. What'd you catch? I watched Free Idiots, which is a Hindi film, and um, it's kind of got all the tropes of a lot of Indian films and like even things we can point out from RRR, which we talked about. I think in the last year, God, time is a time is a mystery. It man. just zoomed by. I have to check it. I it was definitely this year the because they, they did the Natu yes. Natu at the Oscars this year, so it was in the last year we watched RRR, and it kind of shares a lot of the same things where it has the spontaneous dance numbers. Um, All is well is a banger, by the way, from the song. Um, painfully on the nose song lyrics <laughs> when they pick the songs and mm. things like that. Um, so there's a lot of those kinds of things, like the over overly dramatic beats uh, and I'm talking about like the when the music goes like bomb on like literally each line delivery has like a sound effect associated there's all of those things but for this and like I that can be almost distracting sometimes is because we're so used to western cinema tropes they don't have a lot of that stuff um, sometimes are more subtle but I think it really works in this film's favor I thought this film was absolutely immaculate I loved it it kind of goes into very similar territory with uh, with the Thai film Bad Genius, which is actually the one I, I talked about with Stephen on his podcast a couple of weeks ago, um, which is all sort of this fun heist thriller about uh, cheating on exams and, and, and helping others cheat in their exams. And it's basically this big commentary and critique of standardized testing. And this film actually is very similar. Also kind of Dead Poet Society-esque a little bit. Um, but like I said, it's exploring that idea and, and, you know, the quote, make your passion your profession, this idea of following your dreams and going against what society's expectation of you is. Uh, but through that three-hour odyssey um, Indian sort mm. of film epic, and I, I thought it was absolutely immaculate for all those things. And it's, it's very fun. It's very stylized. It's very vibrant colors, especially the, I think it's the red, green, and blue that sort of represents each character. There's the famous shot of them sitting on these like little butt-shaped chairs, and I think that's part of the poster, um, which is really cute. But just their dynamic and their friendship, and especially um, around uh, Ranch, Ranchu. I think I must have misspelled that. I didn't think it was Ranchu. Um, who's sort of the the free thinker genius, and I kind of got autistic vibes as well. So you know, representation. Let's go. <laughs> um, he's awesome. He's an awesome character, and and he does so much for his friends in the film, and it just creates that dynamic. Well, it's just so so a great addition to the list. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, it was just brilliant, brilliant film. And and like I said, it's like very fun in, at times. And you think of films like Banshees of Inisherin, which is like he's a more like dramatic. Mm serious darker turn at like an analysis of friendship because at the film's core it is about their friendship and that's what all those themes are funneled through and i liked that this um was sort of a more fun examination of friendship it was a bit more lighthearted and comical but when it hits hard it hits hard there were some like holy crap plot twist moments in this film so i i loved it from all sorts of angles (laughs) Now, I caught a couple of other films that were a bit newer, but I'll throw it to you first, See, What have you been watching in the last week? Well, I did watch a Christmas film because we are Ooh. fastly um, oh, God, we moving are. towards Christmas. Um, obviously, I go to Europe in the next week. Yes, so we had my we had our Christmas. Um, Lucinda and I had, obviously, her family's Christmas thing this weekend that just went by on the Sunday. And, um, we, oh, is we, this the, what, like a Christmas film a day? 
They were doing Chris, watching a lot of Christmas films. Okay. They were also watching the, the the Santa Claus show. I didn't get to see too much. Oh, of I that. forgot. There's a show of that, isn't there? There is. Yeah. Um, but I watched for the first time, uh, for holidays or for Christmases, depending on which region. Uh, yeah. The film is distributed. So it's, it's funny because Mum just watched this. I saw her watching it the other day, and I have seen this. I, saw it, I think I saw it in cinemas, years and mm. years and years ago. Weirdly enough. And obviously, it's one of those sort of. Uh, it's quite interesting because I think we've talked a few times, but um, in Blake Snyder's Saving Save the Cat yep. novel, one of his key references is actually this four quadrant picture, um, and he actually uses it a lot to like dissect uh, a good logline in particular, and okay. I, I find because it has a lot of irony in it. Mm. Um, and to be honest, it, look, it, it's a perfectly serviceable comedy, Christmas comedy. It's always nice watching a film like this from that sort of era where, you know, arguably we're in the golden age of, of that kind of comedy mm. um, film, um, situational comedy film, which um, was kind of what we, we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And it was, it was a nice film. It was a very short film. It's 86 minutes. It's mm. a very... Um, very short, but very perfectly serviceable and enjoyable, I found. Jeez, that's like 21 minutes per Christmas. <laughs> yeah. But can I can I ask a quick, quick question? Because this is actually something that's been eternally bothering me for, uh, I guess, 15 years now. Because I do, I do think I watched this in cinemas in 2008. Mm. Is this the film with the scene where the dad blindfolds himself when eating dinner so as not to... Um, not to be swayed by the empty plate. Is that is this film that scene? No. No? Oh, that just makes it even worse, see? Now I have no idea what scene that film's from. Yeah. I thought it was for holidays or for Christmases, yeah. I do not remember a scene with that in this. Oh, um, that makes it even more frustrating. You know what it might have been? It might have been... What's, oh, God, what's that film? The Morgans or the, the hiding out? Oh, did with- you hear about the Morgans? Is, is that, that it with the the witness protection? Yeah, then maybe that's the one I'm thinking of. I have to. That like, I also saw in cinemas. Vince, Vince Vaughn comedies. There's something. I've, where has he gone? Where did he go? It's a good point. He was in Fighting with My Family, one of the very early films on this podcast. Let's find out. Newest release. Let's see. Oh, he's in Seaberg. Interesting. I don't know. He's just a fun. I like. Oh, he's in Freaky, of course. He swaps bodies with the girls, and he's a serial killer. And right. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, that was nearly four years ago. So, to your credit, where is Vince Vaughn? I miss him. He's a he's a a positive memory from that time. Mm, I think. Fair enough. Um. But yeah, what about you, Jake? Yeah. So I caught two newer films. Um. In addition to the poster film, I start with David Holmes's The Boy Who Lived. Well, I, I added an apostrophe there. I think it's just David Holmes, semicolon, The Boy Who Lived, um, which is the documentary, very nice, sharp, 90-minute documentary about David Holmes, the uh, Harry Potter stunt double. You know, Daniel Radcliffe's mm. main stunt double throughout that whole franchise, who was famously paralyzed while working on the la- one of the last films. I think they were shooting part one and part two of Deathly Hallows, like kind of in a weird, out-of-order thing. Right. And... Um, that's something I noticed as well. I was like, wow, the, the first scene they shot on the first film was them on the train leaving, which is the last scene in the film. And then the first scene they shot with Deathly Hallows, but, and they shot blocked that, the part one and part two, was the final Hogwarts battle with Hogwarts all destroyed. I was that's, like, why do they keep doing that? 
That's very strange. I know. They didn't do the um, E.T. or Home Alone thing. Was it a Home Alone thing they shot in chronological order, or was that just E.T.? That might have just been E.T. I think just E.T. Yeah, fair enough. I might have got that mixed up. But um, to the point of this documentary, and it is very Harry Potter-centric, I was sort of trying to thinking about that when I was watching it. Is this just an ad for Harry Potter? Like, would I have watched this if not for the Harry Potter connection? But that being said, th- that franchise is kind of where David Holmes' career begins and ends, especially in the context yes. of how his injury, which was a completely life-changing injury, uh, was on the Harry Potter set. So you, it kind of makes sense in the context of the documentary why it is very Harry Potter. Do they show the incident? Focused. So what they do, and uh, I, I don't want to kind of spoil it in a sense, they show... The shot, because it is on camera, because it was actually them rehearsing the stunt. So it wasn't, like, in front of all the actors and everyone. This was them rehearsing, like, a month before filming was meant to start. Mm. And what happens is he's zipped to this thing that's going to get pulled to the, like, the back of the wall. So he's going to get, like, thrust backwards. And they basically cut to black as he's, like, started to get thrusted. So you don't see the exact injury but you see, like, the final moments right beforehand, and they kind of tastefully cut away from it. Um, But what they also do in that scene is they bring up the actual description of the scene from the script. So they bring up the script, and they sort of highlight it. Oh, this is, like, Harry's thrust through this thing, through the wall, and the snake jumps it, blah, blah, blah. And what I liked about the way they did this and kind of how it propels the driving question of the rest of the documentary is... You know, a, a writer just writes this thing. Oh, and, and this action scene happens and this person gets thrust here. And to what extent do we as artists have... I mean, th- there is all this stuff about safety and doing these things safely, but to what extent is this all worth it? You know, and, and it kind mm. of it kind of draws that question of, okay, well, where do we draw the line? Was it the other stunt coordinators there on the day that maybe they should have done something differently to have prevented that? Or, you know, was it the director or was it the, the script writer who maybe should have thought of a different way to write the scene? Or does it go back to the original author, who, of course, is not in this documentary in any capacity for obvious reasons? Um, I kind of like that it that drew that question and that a lot of the scenes that followed that, because that's about 30 minutes in. So we still have an hour of story left to tell mm. about his recovery in hospital. But a lot of the interviews with like, Daniel Radcliffe, for example, with, with David Holmes' mother, they're all sort of like they talk about that moment, like those few months after it happened where they were sort of charged with this energy of like, who do I blame? Do I blame myself? Do I, again, like who who's to blame for mm. something like this? And I like that it explored that. And I really like, we saw David Holmes, who's such, you know, the whole time we get to meet him and he's just like this charismatic guy and he's really friendly with, with Daniel Radcliffe and he, he loves stunts. He just loves doing these crazy things for the movies and for Hollywood slowly have he that all of that chipped away at him as his recovery becomes more and more and more just tiresome and, and restraining and, and hopeless. And I like that the documentary, it goes that deep where it's like, wow, I feel generally really horrible yeah. <laughs> watching this because it's, it's going to that extent. But it is all in sort of service of this aspirational story. I would say I would have liked to have seen the doco. Maybe if it was an extra 30 minutes long, they could have, tied in like the history of stunts in Hollywood mm-hmm. and maybe the underappreciation of stunts in Hollywood because there is obviously that argument of why don't we have Oscar um, awards, for yep. example, Academy Awards for stunt work and why is there not more appreciation for it? So I think it could have done that. It was sort of more focused on just the, the, the portrait of this man. 
Um, and I, and I want to shout out one of the last scenes is Daniel, obviously Daniel Radcliffe and, and David Holmes going to the Warner Brothers warehouse and reminiscing over this big wardrobe of all the costumes. And it was sort of in that moment where you, you don't think about it. It's like the special tie that an actor and their stunt person has, they literally are wearing, they're sharing the same clothes. Yeah, the same they outfits. are. The, yeah. And that was when they're going through all the Harry Potter costumes over the years, they're like, oh, this one's yours. Oh, there's mine. That's funny. Like, they're kind of looking at the tags. And yeah, it just really reminds you of how, like, Especially inseparable that relationship in is. in their dynamic where they've mm. literally grown up with each other. Yes, exactly. And I think Daniel describes it as, like, it was like having a slightly older, cooler brother that I got to hang out with all the time because it was required for the movies and that, and for them to have the similar motion and the way they moved. And, hmm. yeah, so it was... I, I quite enjoyed it. Like I said, I think there were a few missed opportunities and I wish it went deeper into the history of stunt work, but um, quite enjoyed it. So that's on Binge or HBO Max. Gotta love a bit of Binge. Gotta love a bit of Binge. Gotta love a bit of your Binge, Zeke. <laughs> that I'm stealing from you. It's okay, Jake. That's oh, totally fine. Thank you. Now, the other one, this is not a Binge. I had to go to the cinema, Zeke. <gasps> I had to go to, oh, I had to go to the cinema watch this one. I watched Bottoms. So um, Thoughts? Yeah, so we had Jesse Newell on a few weeks ago, to, and he talked about seeing Bottoms at the Sydney premiere, Yeah, and he was really thrown off by the film. He talked about how he thought that the tone uh, sort of whiplash was just not working for him, and that he couldn't tell whether it was trying to be a funny film or a more sincere film, and and I, I have to say, Jesse, I don't know what on earth you're talking about. Really? This is very clearly... A f- like a funny, hilarious, sort of raunchy, very Barbie-esque comedy in a lot of ways. And I say Barbie-esque because it, it has like the wacky scenarios, the wacky characters, um, comical depictions of patriarchy. So it's like, it's got all of that. And I guess coming off, um, you know, Emma Seligman's previous film, which was Shiver Baby, which is a film about making its audience feel very um, anxious yeah. And giving them a lot of anxiety for this situation. And this one, I was like, nope, this is just straight-up comedy. And I was in the cinema by myself, like, bus- gut-busting laughing half the time. There was so many hilarious lines, the delivery of the lines. It was just, I was like, this was just such a great, fun time. I was really surprised by his thoughts on that. Excellent. So um, Good counterpoint. Uh, well, there you go. Return I, serve. That's it. So, um, yeah. And I, I do like that it has that sort of subversion of expectations where, I mean, we're sort of in a post-book smart era in terms of like high school comedies, especially raunchy high school comedies. And what I love is that this film takes two openly loser bisexual characters, oh, sorry, openly bisexual loser characters, although they're openly losers as well, they always make self-deprecating jokes about themselves, and, and a lot of the humour is in that as well, like one of, the, one of the funniest lines is just when they're, they're talking to sort of like the clicky bitchy club, yeah. the girls and then the, the PA system comes and it's like, oh, can the two ugly gays please come to the principal's office? And it's like, it's all very self-aware and irreverent in that way, which I, which I thought was quite funny, but the other thing is that their motivation, the film, is not unlike the motivation of your typical guy teen characters in these kinds of comedies 20 years ago. Mm. They're literally starting a fight club to sleep with hot cheerleaders. And it's very unashamedly, that's their motivation throughout the film. And it's like, but they're also openly bisexual loser characters that are female. <laughs> so I kind of like that they're almost, they're almost taking it back in a way. 
which I which I thought was quite interesting. So interesting. Yeah, um, I had an absolute blast. You I came this film was fired up and ready to go, Jake. Yeah, well that's it. There you got to do it. So no, I I I freaking loved it. I thought it was awesome, and I would love to go back to see it in a like a more full cinema. Mm. But um, even even in a dead empty, actually it was weird because I went there. Not only were there several tickets like booked, and then no one showed up. One person showed up during the commercials, sat in the seat closest to the exit with like a notepad, sat there for I swear to God ten minutes, and then left before the movie started and didn't come back. I was like, "What's happening? <laughs> Where am I?" <laughs> oh God! So um, there what you an go. Odd one. I know it. It is very odd, but um, yeah, I. I hope the movie comes to streaming very soon so more people can enjoy it. But that is everything I've seen in the last week, Zeke. Well, I've really just continued uh, slowly unveiling uh, The Bear Season 2. Yeah, so you um, were messaging me about this. Yeah, look, I I've, I've think Mr. Clark, Mr. Stephen Clark, who was on the uh, show just mm, recently. A couple of weeks ago. A couple yeah. of weeks ago. Um, said that this might be the show to succeed succession, mm. pun intended. But the next um, big thing. Yeah and, yeah, and to be honest, he's probably got a point. I think, obviously, as the episodes in season two are starting to shift to almost individual character profiles, which I find... Uh, okay. So we're really yep. fleshing out the ensemble and giving everyone their underwater episode from BoJack you or, go. you know, something like that where... And they're they're impeccably crafted. I mean, there's an episode that one character goes to Europe and Will Poulter's in it, and that's great. Like, there's oh, some yeah. really good um, <laughs> cameo um, episodes. I've just got up to, I think it's called Six Fish or something like that, which is the hour-long Christmas episode where um, set in the past, um, and that's where we get to see who Kami, who's the main character, and... Um, who his parents are, which of course are Jamie Lee Curtis and, and Bob Odenkirk, which is oh, very exciting. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, and look, that's like obviously not really a, a, a shock. It's just a really cool thing to see these people cameo. Mm. Jamie Lee Curtis is like the most diverse actress I think I've ever mm. seen. I've never seen someone just encapsulate whatever role no matter how crazy or chaotic or or different and unique mm. it is. And, and for me, that is so interesting um, uh, because, yeah, I just like, you know, I've, I think I've watched the first, I've, unfortunately I had to go to bed or something, but I watched the first 10 minutes of it and I was yeah. like, I just like was enamored with her performance because it, you know, she's got long hair in it, which almost, caught me off guard because now <laughs> nowadays she's always got short hair you knives out everything everywhere um i think it's like a bob in everything everywhere for me yeah but i don't know yeah. i've just never seen someone who's yeah is as multifaceted as she is mm. which is very impressive um and you know it's a good show when it's got john bernathol showing oh, up so <laughs> you go so that was oh, that I was it, it for me no i i honestly think that the driving narrative of the second season is leagues above the establishing season i think the first establishing season is good mm. but it's like you know we, we had this debate which of the four seasons of succession is the best all four of them oh it's so hard all four of them are good it's like i can easily say to you that i find the first season of bojack i almost gave up on bojack from that first season well a lot of critics it, nearly did as well it notoriously has like a what 55 percent 
Rotten Tomatoes score. And that's purely because back then Netflix only showed the first half of a season to critics. Yeah. So that score's purely based on just the first half of the season. Yeah. And then, of course, every preceding season is either 99% or 100%. Yeah. So, um, so you got to give shows time, mm. don't you? And you have to you have to give them that sort of that leeway. So really enjoying it. Um, other than that, yeah, that's that's pretty much all. I, I watched the fourth episode of Invincible, which is the oh, mid-season yep. finale. Ah, um, there so they're it is. already doing four episodes <laughs> and then another four. How long are the episodes? Like twenty minutes? Uh, anywhere between uh, twenty-five to forty-five minutes. They're oh, okay. very loose. Okay, so. For an animated Run series, times. those are some long running times. Yeah. Getting up into the 40-minute mark. So, um, really good. Really good fourth episode. So, oh, excellent. gave that a watch. And that's all I caught this week. There you go. I think, I think we did pretty well between the two of us. I think so, too. Now, there's a couple of things to talk about. I reckon, before we get into career updates, let's uh, jump ahead to a little list that I found here. I was going to say a list that I compiled. I certainly did not compile this list. I do not represent the uh, Golden Globes 2014 nominees. I didn't write it, <laughs> but I found it. And we're going to go through it, Zeke, um, because it's that time of year. And I'm really hopeful that we can get a little more awards discussion in before we end the show. Um, I think mid-January, we should, we might have our Oscar noms by then as well. So. That would be nice. Yeah, so I think we're going to get a little more into the weeds. It's always an awkward time of year for us because half the stuff in these lists are films that we're excited about but haven't been able to, to yes. watch because a lot of these aren't out yet. Yes. So there's a lot of nods here for like films like Poor Things and The Holdovers and The Zone of Interest and Anatomy of a Fall and lots of films that just aren't out here yet. We can't watch them. Yeah. Which is very frustrating, but... Nevertheless, there are plenty of films in this as we have seen, so I think it's worth exploring. So, I'm going to start right from the top. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start from the bottom with the award that actually made me, like, nearly throw a chair. This award is called Cinematic and Box Office Achievement. What is that award? What can make the most money? I I guess so. (laughs) What is that award? What achievement for cinematic and box office? Box office achievement seek. It's like Jesus. a participation toasty, a trophy. Oh god, I would rather eat a toasty than than this. Anyway, so nominees are Barbie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three, John Wick Chapter Four, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning Part One, Oppenheimer, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and Taylor Swift. The Errors Tour. What well, these all just all the movies with long titles because they're all sequels. Okay. So what are, is this the <laughs> award to try and get Taylor Swift an award? I think this is the award to get Taylor Swift and like Tom Cruise and th- just to show up. If there's like a physical venue mm. for them all to just be in the room, I think that's what it is. Unless Taylor Swift wins, in, the, in which case I think you're absolutely right. That's probably what they're trying to do there. Um, I think, you, okay, I'm going to be serious about this because when I read this, I think last night, I was like, I'm not even going to pretend to care what should win. But yeah. the more I think about it, I'm like, well, what does <laughs> what, it really mean? What should win? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well here's the thing. And I, and I feel like Barbie probably will win in other categories for something. Not that there's like production design or costumes or anything in, with the Golden Globes. It's mostly yeah. just acting and directing and writing and, and then best picture. Um, I feel like that's the film that probably best in... First of all, I think it actually is the one that made the most money out of all the ones listed there. 
Um, and, the, and I'm looking at it now, I'm like, actually, half of these flopped, or like Mission Impossible kind of flopped, underperformed. Uh, the, ar- the argument is, I think the award is not necessarily just money, but it's also cultural impact. Exactly, um, exactly. So when a film comes along and, and sort of, yeah, it, it moulds the community, it makes people want to get dressed up to go to. So yep. that's why I'm sitting there going, oh, that Taylor Swift one has a really good chance of winning that particular category because uh, people... Nothing on Barbenheimer. True. And I'm, I'm saying that objectively. Like I, like, I know people were excited about the Taylor Swift movie and... I know people, I, you're like dressed up and did little cult dances in the front of the cinema during the credits. Like, I know that happened, but that, it felt like a, a weekend compared to Barbenheimer, which felt like a several month long yeah. event. So Barbie should win it then. Yeah. So I, I think you're right. I think the cultural impact is important. I would love to see him just announce Barbenheimer and then cut the trophy in half and give it to both producers. I don't think that either of them really want that, do they? <laughs> Well, it's funny because I watched the um, the variety actor on actor thing with mm. Killian Murphy and Margot Robbie, and she talks about that how one of the producers on Oppenheimer, who she she knew personally, so it wasn't like a cold call, but it was a friend of hers who was a producer and said like, "Oh, you guys mind uh, moving your date?" She's like, "Well, if you're so scared, maybe you should move your date," and uh, <laughs> just went back and forth. Um, but I'm glad they didn't. I think it worked out for both films very well. Yeah, it didn't impact either. Well, that's it. Uh, if anything, it, it rose, it elevated both films, brought people to the... Well, there were statistic facts about that, weren't there? Mm. There was like a certain percentage of box office sales of Oppenheimer from people who went to see Barbie and it was sold out. So they saw Oppenheimer while they were there. So they literally elevated each other up, yeah. which I love, so... I guess that's the one thing you can get out of a cinematic box office achievement Golden Globe Award nomination. You don't sound patronising at all. <laughs> no, no. I'm being dead serious here, Zeke. Now, of course. best motion picture animated. We've got The Boy and the Heron, Elemental, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, uh, the Super Mario Bros. movie, uh, Suzum? Suzumi, I think it's Suzumi, and Wish. Um... Now, we haven't seen The Boy and the Heron, so it kind of is tempting to give it to that Ghibli train. And I hear I hear it is amazing. But, I don't know. And I know you're not the biggest fan of Spider-Verse, but I thought it was immaculate animation work. Well, that's what the award's for. Mm. So you can't argue with that. It's, a, it's yeah. like undisputed. But I guess the argument is, let's take it that step further. Maybe the fact that it's part one might uh, prevent it from winning this one and right. maybe you might see them getting up in part two. Mm. Um, That's fair enough. Uh, do, do they care about that, though? Well, the people voting for this? I think in, I think to the awards, it's like with Lord of the Rings and how Return of sure. the King mopped up everything in the other yeah, two films. At the end of the trilogy, yeah. yeah. No, I know what you mean. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so that that might affect it in a negative way. It might go to something else this year. Yeah, what do you think it would be? I mean, I have you haven't seen literally any of the other ones in this list. <laughs> no, I was thinking. I mean, obviously, a, a Ghibli Ghibli film is yeah. always going to be in that conversation. Um, I can't see Super Mario Bros. No, um, like it's fine. Elemental's fine. Yeah. Yeah, and Wish doesn't actually look that... I'm surprised he's even in here, to be honest. Yeah. But, um, 
Yeah, you got to get that Disney stuff in there. Yeah, uh, I I still think Spider Verse will win it, unless it is the Boy and the Heron. I, I but I, I think it's between those two. Yeah, but I'm saying this is someone who's not. I haven't had my ear to the wall in the um, awards talk so far this year. Yeah, uh, maybe in a couple of weeks we will have more information about that. But best motion picture, non English language. We got Anatomy of a Fall, Fallen Leaves, uh, La Capitano. Past Lives, Society of the Snow, and The Zone of Interest. Um, now, considering Past Lives has been nominated, like, almost everywhere else, which I think surprised a lot of people because of the whole how much of it's in English, how much of it, how much of it is in Korean, um, a kind of a farewell situation. Mm-hmm. Seems to have passed the test because it's in a lot of categories here. So I, it probably will be that by default. That being said, I feel like Autonomy of a Fall was, like, the big one... That came out of Sundance. And the one I'm personally most excited about is The Zone of Interest, because that's um, Jonathan Glazer. His first film in, I think, nearly 10 years since Under the Skin. And him doing his uh, take on the Holocaust. I'm like, I imagine that's going to be an insane movie. (laughs) Um, I can imagine it would be too. What's your thinking in there? It's probably Past Lives? Yeah, probably Past Lives. It's the one you've heard the most about. Well, I think it's also up in Best Film, Best Motion Picture. Yeah, it's in there, so... Then it's the Another Round situation, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Where it's sort of like... The Roma situation, the Parasite situation, every every year, basically. Um, Cool. Best Original Song. (laughs) Three of these, by the way, are all in Barbie. We've got Dance Tonight, I'm Just Ken, and What Was I Made For? It's got to be I'm Just Ken. Yeah. I think that that's this. I mean, it's that with dance. That's the zeitgeist thing, isn't it? Yeah, but it it also is just a massive cinematic number. Like, mm. it's the part of the film that I think everyone universally likes. Right. Like we. I mean, it got made fun of in Saturday Night Live. It's like it's had an impact. Yeah. <laughs> because it's. Yeah, and it you know for most people that's the highlight scene of the film. Mm. Because it's just Ryan Gosling being silly. I will, yeah, I will say that. And I, I know, I remember early on there was a lot of talk about it being the Billie Eilish, the sad song, you know, what was I made for? But I kind of, I I definitely agree with you then and I have no reason not to agree with you now that I'm like, but I'm just Ken was the one, you're right, that's the one everyone talked about. It's the yeah. one that had, the, everyone knows that, well, not everyone knows all the lyrics, but, you know. You, you, you probably find it'll be the Billie Eilish song. Probably. Maybe by the time we get to the Oscars, it might be. But we might be dealing with like more popular, known stuff now, and the conversation shifts over time. So I'm gonna go. I'm with you. I think it's. I'm just Ken. We shout out to also Peaches from the Super Mario Brothers film, uh, Road to Freedom from Rustin. I don't know what that is. And Addicted to Romance by Bruce Springsteen in She Came to Me. Mm. There you go, Zeke. A bit of a shout out there, but I, I think you're right. It's poised to go to one of the Barbie tracks, I believe. Uh, best original score uh, we got films Poor Things, Oppenheimer, The Boy and the Heron, The Zone of Interest, Across the Spider Verse, and Killers of the Flower Moon. It's a surprisingly diverse list right there. Um, out of the ones that we've seen, I'm probably going to say Oppenheimer. Yeah, I would too. Um, yeah. But I haven't heard the score for the, the Zone of Interest or Poor Thing. Well, the the trailer music for Poor Things is really wacky and interesting and sort of 
like like an orchestral band being conducted by a six-year-old almost. It's really wacky and strange and interesting, so maybe that could also be in there. But mm. um, God, I can't wait to watch that film. Um, best screenplay, Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's Barbie, Tony McNamara's Poor Things, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, Eric Ruff and Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon, Celine Son's Past Lives, and Justin Tretz and Arthur Harari for Anatomy of a Fall. What's your thinking there? Do you think Killers of the Flower Moon have a chance? Hmm. I'm thinking back to, like, The Irishman, where it got nominated for a lot of things and didn't win anything. Yeah. And I feel like, sadly, it's going to be the same situation I feel like it's here. Oppenheimer, then. It's Oppenheimer's to lose, isn't it? Mm. I mean, less poor things. Now, all poor things, if it's a, you know, obviously a really tight, really entertaining script, because it comes back to... I've heard people it's People feel l- very warm about The Favourite, so... Mm. I've heard that the third act drags. I've heard a lot of people say they wish poor things ended 20 minutes earlier than it did. That's so that could affect the, the scripts side so of it. And then it's Oppenheimer's, I think. Maybe. I think it, it depends. Do they want to acknowledge Barbie here? Because I think this is probably the place, other than the box office whatever award, this is probably the best place to acknowledge Barbie. But also the script for Oppenheimer is very, just so well done and just so, what's the word? What's faithful to the original book for starters, which is why I'm kind of, I think Barbie is... So when they split them up in the Oscars, Barbie's going to be original screenplay and Oppenheimer will always be adapted screenplay. So I think that's going to make the conversation there a lot easier. That being said, I also see them doing Past Lives. This also is like one it makes sense to give it to Past Lives. Mm. Even though I'm not... I don't think it was my favourite script this year. That might be a little controversial for him to say. Hot take. Jake's Um, hot takes. I might, hmm, I and might go with Oppenheimer as well yeah. on this one. And part of the reason as well is I think they would rather acknowledge Greta Gerwig in directing as opposed to her and Noah Baumbach, mm. which might be just a weird sort of third, you know, gender politics thing going on there. But I could see that being the case. Best director. Here you go, Z. Bradley Cooper for Maestro. <laughs> he's done it. The man's oh, done it. He's done it. Jeez, he's uh, he was smiling big all day when that news came out. <laughs> At last, oh, I have conducted Lord. a masterpiece. Oh God! Now we've also got Greta Gerwig for Barbie, Yorgos Lanthimos for Poor Things, Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer, Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, and Celine Son for Past Lives. Celine Son. I keep mispronouncing it for some reason. Um, I feel like she could get it. I think Gerwig Greta, could, Greta Gerwig, yeah. Greta Gerwig could get it here. From I could see Oppenheimer getting screenplay and, and Greta Gerwig getting director. I could see that in yeah. the case. Um, yeah, I think again, like uh, I mean, we haven't seen Maestro yet. I have a feeling it's not going to win. You know what I mean? Um, and Kills of the Flower Moon, same thing. Everyone loves Marty. Let's nominate him. But is he going to win? My guy Marty. My guy Marty. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with you there. Even though I, I, I think Poor Things will definitely be a better film than Barbie, but I think that's how the conversation's going. So yeah, it's very interesting. All right, best performance by a male actor in a supporting role. We have Willem Dafoe in Poor Things, Robert De Niro in Killers of the Flower Moon, Robbie Downey Jr. in Oppenheimer. I mean, it's probably that. 
um, Ryan Gosling for Barbie, Charles Menton for May, December, and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. Is it going to Downey? Yeah, I'd say so. Mm. He's got a pretty... His performance is fantastic. Um, it's a shame these, again, aren't split into drama and comedy. Yeah. Um, so it just depends. Do they do they like the Ryan the Ryan Gosling funny performance, or they do they like Robbie Downey Jr. doing a serious role? I think it's it, a real it's a real uh, yeah, like you said, it it depends on the direction. Mm, it? Yeah, I think it's going to be Robbie Downey Jr. I think so too. I actually Good, think he might be a clean of... sweep this whole season potentially. You reckon? Yeah, I mean, like everyone loves Ryan Gosling and Barbie and yada yada, but it's like they want to they want to credit Ger- Greta Gerwig. Yeah. They don't want to give all the Barbie awards to the man. I think this is this is her. <laughs> this is Gerwig's kind of coronation, like her crowning moment for mm. being brought to that forefront of now an A tier director. Right. Um, just like complete household name, and I feel like she was a household name a few years ago, but now just like through the stratosphere. Yeah, so this I- is like. I think, and I look back to the marketing campaigns and how much she featured in mm. it, and how she was. A real active participant in that she yep. wasn't um doing sporadic appearances it was like she was there next to margot doing a lot of the stuff yep. with her and i think that that participation really shows how all in she was with the film too yep. and i think that this is the one that puts her to i think little women's like the one that puts the spotlight on her sure but this is the the crowning greta gerwig mm. moment yeah recognition for I mean, probably, I, I still think I probably preferred Little Women and, and Lady Bird, but I, I mm. can accept the cultural um, impact that Barbie had. You know, I think I've given all three of her films three and a half stars in Letterboxd. All three of them? Yeah. Mm. I, all, all of them. I've just had that, like, yeah, it's great, but dot, 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 yeah. and then, yeah. And I've seen Lady Bird like three or four times, and I'm still like, other than the ending, which is is immaculate, it's an awesome ending, but I'm like, I still don't quite get it. Other than yeah. that, and Little Women, there was there was a few things there as well. I'm sure we talk about it way back when we're talking about the early 2020s Oscars. This is like episode what 56, 57? We're talking about that. Yeah, and then Barbie again. It's like I, I think it's a great film. I don't think but, it's perfect. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but I, I, I think other than that, yeah, mm. you'll find Oppenheimer will probably get up on on all major categories, right? Including the performance yeah. side of things. Best uh, performance by a female actor in a supporting role: so Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer, uh, Danielle Brooks in The Color Purple. I didn't realize people had already started seeing that. Well, uh, Jodie Foster in Nyad, NYAD. Uh, Julianne Moore in May, December, Rosamund Pike in Saltburn, and Divine Joy uh, Randolph in The Holdovers. Uh, other than Oppenheimer, I don't think we've seen any of these films. I'm so keen for The Holdovers. Yeah, it's going to be great. Um, I don't think Emily Bond will... She's too much of like a background. Like, she's well, a strong yeah, I character. I honestly but... would have put... Yeah, between her and Florence Pugh, which one would you... I feel like Florence Pugh gets more oh, to do. Oh, I see. Um, hmm. Maybe. Out of the two female performers. To be honest, I didn't even think about like her being in awards contention, so maybe that's part of it. It's just like, oh, well, Emily, she's the wife of the titular yeah. character. She's got to be the one in the nominations. No. Yeah, fair fair pull. I didn't even think about that. 
Best Performance by a Male Actor in a Motion Picture Musical or Comedy, so Nicolas Cage in Dream Scenario, Timothy Chalamet in Wonka, Matt Damon in Air, Paul Giamatti in The Holdovers, Joaquin Phoenix for Bo is Afraid. I love that, by the way. <laughs> and not Napoleon. Uh, and Jeffrey Wright for mm-hmm. American Fiction. Um, I've seen a couple of these. Uh, all that I'm happy with is I'm hearing Paul the Giamatti's name. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I actually did watch Sideways this week, too, in prep for... Um, oh, excellent. So good. It's just immaculate. It's immaculate film. And I would is... I would love it if Joaquin Phoenix won this just for the lols. <laughs> That's awesome. Nah, Paul Giamatti all the way. Fair enough, fair enough. I think it's very likely. I think it's very likely. Best performance by a male actor in a motion picture drama. Bradley Cooper in Maestro. Leonardo DiCaprio in Kills of the Flower Moon. Uh, Coleman Dima- uh, Domingo in Rustin. Uh, Barry Keoghan in Saltburn. That is, I finally figured out that's how you pronounce it. Barry Keoghan. According to Emerald Fennell. Uh, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer and Andrew Scott for All of Us Strangers. It's got to go to Killian, I think. It doesn't go to Killian. That's a robbery. Yeah, I, I just... It's, I think it's his moment too, really. Well, I think that's it. He's so overdue and everyone loves him. And Yeah. Yeah, it's time. It's bloody time. Yeah. It's kind of like the, it's the LDC aspect, you know, mm. the Leo from uh, the Revenant year. Because, you know, he's in so many good roles and he's so consistent and he's almost reliable. Like, you, whenever you see him on screen, you know the film's going to be good. Yeah. At least that's a good yeah reliable is always a, it's a good way to put it yeah you can it's like, never I, like I one way or the bad. other with yeah, him I can't yeah. think of a bad film he's been in no exactly like, and it's and, and even to top off the Leo situation with the Revenant where it's like that's a film that I think a lot of people agree like well that's not his best performance it might be like his most daring and physically demanding one but yeah, like it was Wolf of Wall Street he should have got it well that's the thing you could point to seven other films that I mean I still think he should have won for Gilbert Grape. <laughs> In the 90s, you know what I mean? Before Titanic. I think even in Titanic. I think he's got a fair argument in Titanic. Yeah. While with Killian, it's like, well... Sunshine. Oppenheimer makes plenty of sense for that to be his big one. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. I have no issue with that, so... He could have won all the way back in Sunshine. I love mm. Sunshine. I think it's a great Danny Boyle film. I still need to see it. Which is crazy. Best performance by a female actor in a musical comedy. Uh, Fant- Fantasia? Is it Fantasia? Fantasia. Fantasia Barry Barino for The Color Purple. Jennifer Lawrence for No Hard Feelings. It's, I guess that makes sense. Uh, Natalie Portman for May, December. Ala uh, Poisty for Fallen Leaves. Margot Robbie for Barbie. And Emma Stone for Poor Things. I have a feeling it's going to be Emma Stone's to lose. Really? You're not going to give it to Margot? No, because I think... like this stuff, And even just looking at that actor-on-actor conversation she had with, with Killian Murphy... Like there's a lot of stuff she talks about in terms of playing an archetype, playing a plastic doll mm. that doesn't really have a reference point for the world. There's a lot of stuff like, oh, I never thought about that. That's such an interesting way she had to maneuver that character and play that role. That being said, I'm like, but I'm looking at what Emma Stone's doing just in the trailer. She's playing... I mean, it's kind of the same thing for her too, where she's playing this Frankenstein monster creation that has no reference point for the world, and I guess we would see that all play out on screen. Yeah. And I, I imagine it's a very daring performance as well, because it seems like a very like sexual film as well. I see August Lanthimos films. So exactly. It's always, exactly. always going to come back to that, isn't it? So I, those freaking I, rabbits. I just think... <laughs> that's freaking rabbits. So I just... I feel like it has to go to Emma Stone. Okay. 
But that's having not seen the film. That's just like my assumption. Gun Emma. There you go. Best performance by a female actor in a drama. Uh, Annette Benning in Nyad. I'm going to keep mispronouncing that. Uh, Lily Gladstone in Killers of the Flower Moon. Sandra Huller for Autonomy of a Fall. Greta Lee for Past Lives. Kerry Mulligan for Maestro. And uh, Kaylee Span- Spanny for Priscilla. For playing Priscilla. Um, on, on paper, that's a little tough, I reckon. I think it could be going uh, Priscilla's way for this one. Well, yeah, I was thinking that. I mean, I would love to see Lily Gladstone. I would too. That would be awesome. But I think she's the best part of that film mm. in a lot of ways. And Reflection, and I think we did bring that up when we were... Her spiral is yeah. subtle and it's such a shame the latter stages of the film go away from her mm. um, because she really is the best part of the film mm. I think um, for a lot of reasons um, she plays that sort of that stake in the ground that has to be so strong against every like gust of wind that comes at her and yeah. it's like you said it's that slow deterioration that loss of health I mean, it's kind of like Olivia Coleman in The Favourite where so much of what we love about that performance is just like how she deals with sickness and just like just complete misery and presenting misery to the camera. Mm. Um, in Olivia Coleman's case, it's a lot more like theatrical. Um, but in this case, you know, with Lily Gladstone, it's like a lot of it is she's fighting so hard to not let that emotion slip out. It's good seeing such a di- uh, diverse array of actresses we haven't mm. really seen at the forefront. Which yeah, is that's good. a good point. I mean, Greta Lee, for example. So I yeah, so I I do like the I think you're right, it's probably between those two. And Kaylee Spency for um Priscilla. So we shall see. Alright, last two categories. Best motion picture in a musical comedy. Air, American fiction, Barbie, The Holdovers, May December, and Poor Things. Let's go the holdovers. Yeah? Let's go for it. It's, I'm, I'm, it's just tough because we haven't seen so many of these. I'm putting my chips in. I mm. genuinely think this is going to be a return to form for... I bloody Pain. hope so. <laughs> We're going to be getting a sideways descendants. We're going to have something in that, that calibre of, of intellect, wit, uh, obnoxious mm. one-liners. Giamatti chucking a tantrum probably at some point. I mean, Barbie's like the, the popular answer. But again, it's like we've already fought. We've already looked at a couple of categories you can win in, so maybe that's when it loses. And yeah, it's either given to our holdovers, or I think Poor Things is also up there. Again, not having seen it yet, um, I, it's so weird seeing a film like Air in here. Like it's fun, but it feels weird it, it being nominated for more than one award. It's that uh, thing in Family Guy <laughs> when they all put their hands in, and then it's just Air, not you. Oh yeah. <laughs> Not you, Seamus. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to put my bet on... Oh, but it just makes so much sense for them to just give it to Barbie. They probably will. They probably will give it to Barbie. Yeah, I don't know. All right, and for drama, best motion picture, Autonomy of a Fall, Killers of the Flower Moon, Maestro, Oppenheimer, Past Lives, and The Zone of Interest. Yeah. I actually have no clue looking it's at Oppenheimer. this. Oppenheimer. Yeah. Oppenheimer. It just, I guess, it just depends. Like, I think, I mean, Past Lives has so many other opportunities to be nominated uh, to win in other places, especially international. So there's that um, zone of interest. Uh, that's just out of my own personal hype. Like, that's probably the film I'm most excited for. Period. Mm. Oh, but poor things. They're probably both up there. But 
So I have to ignore that because I don't know how much of that hype is like the general buzz around that film. Mm. Um, and then Killers. I, but again, does that just sort of get lost in the shuffle? Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Oppenheimer makes a lot of sense. And it could be something like Autonomy of a Fall that we just haven't really... We don't yeah. know enough about that film to, to talk about how it fits in. So, yeah. So, that's all very interesting, Zeke. Excellent. Well, it's time for us... <laughs> well, we normally do career updates. Jake, do you have any career updates before we move um, to the second half of the Well, show? I'll briefly... I know we've been going quite long, so I'll be very brief. And that I will apologize in advance the reason this podcast has gone up late this week <laughs> that we're recording on a Tuesday is because I've been working on a little old film called 200% Wolf, which is the sequel to the Screen West animated film from 2020, 100% Wolf. So, yeah, a little naming convention right there. They're, Very good. They're on to it, Zeke. But, no, uh, this week we are scoring the film. We're re- recording the live orchestra at the ABC building and uh, being very graciously allowed to, to join and help move a mic or two, or open a door, deliver a coffee. Um, that was my own. I wasn't forced to deliver coffees. I offered to come and carry it all in <laughs> excellent so i'm kind of a half intern half sort of helping out hand but uh it's just oh it's been incredible it's probably the most professional thing i've been on to date purely just based on like the budget and things like that um seeing the unfinished animation on screen that i know they've had to scramble to sort of lock the picture to get the scoring session done in time so most of what i'm seeing is unfinished shots which is interesting in of itself seeing the animation and what the characters look like and already been spoiled to hell like i know everything that happens in the film within like two hours of (laughs) just sitting in in the studio box but the thing i really wanted to just sort of sink in was the way they go about it which was just insane amounts of equipment and wiring throughout the building because we're talking about like 50 plus instruments all being Mm. played in unison that all have their own mics and all the musicians need their own headsets with the the ticking on one track and then the rest of the orchestra on one uh, sorry, the, on one earpiece. Yeah. They're left and right. Um, and then, of course, the conductor that's doing their thing, the concert master, and then everyone behind the glass, so the composer, and then uh, the people I'm working with, like Mal and Jamie, they're in charge of the actual recording of it and all, that it's all recording as clean as possible in Pro Tools and just seeing the communication. That was the thing I really wanted to, to um, seep in was what are the conversations being had between them and the thing that blows my, my mind and I guess it's like this for most ins- uh, musicians is just the amount they can hear they will do like okay take one let's go and it sounds like this perfect beautiful orchestral two minute piece of music and it's like oh like turn down like the, you know the second trombone just turn that down a little bit and then this crescendo this instrument have less crescendo and this one I'm like how do you how are you guys hearing this <laughs> <laughs> this is insane so um, it's been an awesome it was a cool experience. experience. Yeah, so um, it's going to Thursday, I believe, and I'm going to help pack everything down as well. So, Very um, exciting. Yeah, awesome, awesome stuff. Though. Hopefully I can talk more about uh, as we wrap the show later next year, I guess. Very exciting. Well, we are moving into talking a little bit more about music. Mm. It's time for our film of the week. Jake, what are we watching? Oh, you're a clever boy. This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Begin Again. Yes, I am. <laughs> Here we are. We hope you like. <laughs> this is unbelievable. You're a total rock star. You're Dave Cole. Would you mind taking a photograph? I don't know what to say. 
I loved him like a fool. You got some talent. I want to make records with you. I'm not a performer. I just write songs from time to time. What do you write them for? Searching for meaning. Let's record an album. And the city is our studio. I defy you not to dance to this song. for the next move, anticipating the next groove. And the road is long, and you're only as strong as your next move. Yo, Fat Jimmy, did you get that down? I got it. All right, because that was exceptionally good. A long-lost music producer finds a singer-songwriter right at about the moment he has given up all hope on life. Goddamn. But can a song save his life sick? Now... It's the original I, title. In that fact. was a very interesting... That was the original title of the film. Yes, apparently. Okay, I can see that not being a very good title for a film. Mm. But like you said, a good tagline, even. It more sounds like a, a, a little tagline that you put under the, the name of the film. Exactly. Sort of, it gauge the, the question. And I think, to be honest, that would have been an interesting uh, tagline to place there. And I, I do think it actually has validity. Because although, like you said, there is a story beat very early on, yeah, Mark Ruffalo's character, Dan, is it? Yeah, it's the one line he um, says. He does say it, but I do think that the theme of the film has that sort of aspect of one song saving multiple people's lives in this. It's mm. the dynamic between Dan and uh, Keira Knightley's character of Greta. Um, Greta. Um, uh, according to Google, is spelt with one T, but for some reason I've been writing it with two Ts, Greta. Um, oh, there you go. I don't know why that is. I think that the, that the song has that sort of knock-on effect. It saves a lot of uh, lives, aspects, relationships. But mm. um, this is sort of the uh, well. This is the middle child of the trilogy, isn't it? It's the yeah. It's not the old, the older brother or sister that's really good at everything, <laughs> and it's not the baby. <laughs> It's not the baby child that everyone kind of looks at with a childish affinity. Mm. I look. I think because yes. I, I, so this is the thing, and we talk about this as like John Carney's unofficial trilogy, and he's he's said that himself. You know, he's referred to this as his unofficial sort of, I guess, musical trilogy. So it it is sort of viewed through that lens, and yep. it is the only one that doesn't take place in Ireland. It is the one, the only one that sure we're, we're following underdog characters. We're following characters that are sort of. I don't want to use the word oppress, but they sort of they have an upward hill to to battle in terms of their creativity and, mm. and getting their voice out there. So it's not unlike films like Once and Sing Again, Sing, Sing Street. Like I got the mixed up Zeke. Sing Again. That should be the next one. <laughs> but I think with those films, there's a much more sort of gritty gorilla feeling to those films, especially with Once. And then I think Sing Street kind of has that grungy teen thing to it which yeah. also this is a lot more... more cinematography i feel in in sing street there's a lot more stylish sure sure but i'm thinking more like even the casting you have mm. like hollywood stars and someone which do not sing or p- 
perform at all. I mean, maybe Mark Ruffler does play the, the... He plays at one point, doesn't he? Yes. In the background. Um, but even then, like, he doesn't sing, for example. He's not a singer. He's an actor in this. And the fact that it takes place in L.A. and things like that. Like, it's very different from his other films. It's a bit more commercial, a bit more Hollywood-esque. So I get why this would probably be people's least favourite of the trilogy. But that being said, watching it again... I'm like, it still has that same heart. It still has that, like, enthusiasm, especially as they start, you know, recording the main album that they record throughout this film. I'm just sitting there being like, God, I love this. You know, I just, I love the scrapping. He still finds a way to make it scrappy, even though the aesthetics of the film are, like, L.A. and and Kira Knightley and Mark Ruffalo. Well, yeah, it's New York. Less. New York. Oh, sorry, New York. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I think I think I they float. Uh, he flies to LA. Dave, yeah, he goes to LA for a, a hot minute. But even just American, just to call yeah. it American, American yeah. cityscape, and you know, very contemporary, squeaky clean boardrooms. The uh, what's it called? Like the the studio heads and things like that. Um, aesthetically, it feel it looks a lot less sort of scrappy, but the story itself still has that element, and it's like it's I love it. I bloody love this film still. Yeah. It's a sweet film. It's mm. a film that uh, has a lot of uh, endearing aspects to it. I, I think the scrappiness is quite funny because there are those states, like you said, of these clean boardrooms, but it's definitely got that almost that anti-corporate capitalist yes. music vibe, especially where um, Greta and, and Dan develop the idea of creating an album with... Like, pure diegetic mm, like on location recordings and um, streets and things like that yeah and that's sort of interesting because obviously in the previous film our main characters you know we they do a little bit of singing obviously you know boy and, and girl do a little mm. bit of singing in in the wild but when they go to record their album they're doing it in a studio we, yeah. we see the full conception of an album in a short period of time mm. um and that's almost like the the payoff aspect, but like yeah. you said, it has that gorilla um, sort of feeling. And obviously, in Sing Street, it's about making that they've, they've kind of recorded the sounds in their living room studio, yeah. And they're actually going out to make the music videos because mm, that's that, it. That's that aspect about making the music videos. And um, I do find that all of uh, all three of them then of looking at different kind of methodologies of art being conceived to cope and escape mm. and express emotions because that's sort of what the the thread is between all three films it's you know it's people that have fallen out of love using uh songs and music as a coping mechanism and also mm. a way to build themselves back up and build positive relationships um and this obviously takes a different perspective than once does because once does it with two characters that are Slowly falling in love, yeah, basically, yeah. And whereas these two are, I do believe there is. I've always thought there's this very interesting dynamic between Dan and, and Greta, and there are moments that almost feel mm. romantic, but left unspoken. Yeah. So um, I actually literally wrote this down the first time I watched this film. I was like, when are they getting together? When are they getting together? When are they going to kiss? When are they going to get together? And then the second time I'm watching it, completely just blank out of my mind, like, oh, yeah, platonic relation. Didn't even think about it. Until right at the end, I was like, 
Oh, yeah, I forgot that I generally thought they were going to get together at one point. There's a moment. There is a moment after they finish, particularly when they finish the album. Mm. There's like a beat that sort of has this moment, like this affection, but it's almost this, like, love for finding the ability to love again. Yeah. Um, and they sort, of, they sort of lead each other back. I mean, kind of, once does this too. Once it's more devastating because you just so desperately want them to get together. But here, they kind of lead each other back into their respective relationships. And th- there's different results, of course. But, yeah. And the other thing as well is the the 3.5 Jack splitter that they share. Like, it's weirdly romantic <laughs> in that context. They, they're huddled together listening to each other's music. And they say the line, like, you can learn a lot from a person's playlist. Yeah. So it is sprinkled in there. You're right. It's it's, But it's cool because it's sort of that expression of emotion and rawness. And these are two people that are not, um, you know, when they meet each other, they're both kind of emotional wrecks. So this sort of mm. uh, way that they, they, when they do that scene, and it's such a amazing idea for a scene of just, just gorilla. That comes back to that grungy gorilla star when they're yep. almost as if his character's activate this sort of raw chaotic creativity um in once it's there all the time because we're following boy and girl but Mm. when we cut back to greta's sort of backstory with adam levine's character yeah it's way more controlled it's it's not as like chaotic it's like you said it's way more traditional just shot reverse shot it's Mm. the the flashbacks are are almost boring in that melodic right yeah, uh, okay. melanch- and whereas when they're together and they're either conceiving those other like going out and shooting the the mu- or recording the music in random places with mm. you know james corden's character and and the band who's surprisingly tolerable in this film he's great i was so. really worried and then i was like oh yeah he's okay yeah he's okay he doesn't ruin the movie this is like early james corden though, it is in movies before he be- you know he became like a caricature of himself almost yeah in this, he's just like, well, he is James Corden, but <laughs> but a, he's reserved a, enough. He's you know he's he's the gay friend, the shoulder the cry on for Greta, mm. and um, I don't think it's explicit that he's gay, but that's no, kind of like the relationship gay. they have. Yes. Um, whereas like he's like a, a safe person to go to during a breakup or during a downbeat in Greta's life. He doesn't really get the opportunity he doesn't get the opportunity to be annoying. No, he doesn't, <laughs> because it's like the first time we see him. He's like happy to see Greta, and then the second time is obviously everything falls apart. And there's that awkward scene where he's trying to like accommodate for her, but doesn't really know what to do. Yeah. Um, which side of the couch you want the pillow on? And that's so great. Yeah. But but it is interesting. I, I I sort of noticed that on my rewatch. I was like, oh, this like the more once esque parts of these films are that when they're going and recording or when they're doing the the audio jack scene where we're, we're following them through this chaotic city but it's almost being romanticized by music and mm. um yeah it is romantic it's romantic it's intimate and maybe that's the thing is is their relationship really is about well it's in the title but their love for each other and they're even their chemistry because yeah. this is the thing these are two people that are clearly having some form of even romantic chemistry to some extent but it's more in the fact that it's able to they I don't know, they feel it enough that it helps spur them, like you said, back into their relationships mm. to get closure or keep working on themselves. They kind of both get what they need out of each other in, in the, the story and for 
for Dan, it's this sense of relevancy that he, I guess, when we first meet him in the film, he's lost that sense of relevancy in the sense that he doesn't gel with the the, the studio anymore. I, I forget the term that I'm, I should be using. I'm just going to call him the studio or the... Um, I think the, the label. The label, thank you. Yeah, he's, he's lost his relevancy with the label. They're trying to fire him, or they do fire him, basically. Um, he looks like a drunk, fired wreck in front of his daughter. And even his his wife, oh, I was about to say ex-wife, I, don't, I can't remember what the situation is exactly. I think they're, like, separated. They're separated, exactly. And she even has the line where she says, like, you know, you will, you'll be forgotten five seconds after you walk out that door. So I think for him it's this sense of relevancy... And then for Greta, it's this idea of, I guess, her voice is lost by Dave, uh, dating Dave Cole. By the way, the way he's, the name Cole is spelled K-O-H-L is just so pompous. I love it <laughs> that they, they snuck it in there. That this is actually how his last name's spelled. But I guess she loses that sense of self and the fact that he kind of steals her song. And it, it seems fine and it, like she's being credited for it, but it is that she wrote something not what's the word she says not for him but because of him Mm. or not because of him but for him i can't remember the exact line but her version's the best version oh yeah by far and and i um, mean his final version the final version's great great and i I do like first off you can go on spotify and hear the the overproduced version in full (laughs) which is quite i i kind of like that they're just like you know what this is meant to be bad but we're gonna put it on the album anyway because that's probably what people want to hear is all is all that as, and as well as the all the little mistakes that happened throughout the live um, the live performance yeah like the um when Haley you know Stanfield's character um she like triggers a feedback loop from one of the speakers and that's in the Spotify soundtrack so which I'm like that's great that's awesome that's what people kind of want out of this but I think for her it's about sort of regaining her voice back and the thing is is Dan is constantly saying this is not our album this is your album. You know, when the album's finished, like, what do you want to do with this album? Do you want to sell to the the label or not? No? Okay, cool. Whatever you want to do. So, I think they kind of both get what they need out of each other through this journey of creating the album. Mm. And and to rewind that back even further, I think the thing that really kind of... When we first saw this film, the film we couldn't stop talking about, Zeke, was the... I guess the, the narrative structure of how the whole... Basically, the whole first half of the film, almost the first half, is rewinding back and forth over the same time period and how we start with Dan and we get the day in his life and the issues he has with his label and his family and, and his drinking problem. Yeah. Um, and the Greta backstory. Yeah, um, exactly. well, yeah, the way it kind of ties back in and we keep seeing that same moment in time before we reverse back to a different perspective. Yeah. So I think that just kind of... I mean, it's been done before. I mean, Pulp Fiction obviously takes that concept or highly but we love to win it yeah but it's that concept of a moment in time that can change your life Mm. and then cutting back and forth to that particular moment and which is the things that led up to it exactly yeah and it's really interesting because then we sort of see the fallout of this moment where dan discovers greta and it's it's kind of anticlimactic at first it's Mm. disruptive and it's and both characters are sort of just having a, a back and forth of their sort of He's trying to keep her there. She's just lost and despondent and doesn't want to be in, in New York mm-hmm. anymore. And um, it is We get an immediate uh, connection with their chemistry because Ruffalo and Knightley, they just work seamlessly off each they other. They do have great chemistry in this film. Um, and you, bu- you buy into it. Mm-hmm. And we really... 
underestimate well Carney's casting in all three of those trilogy films is is impeccable but the way he creates chemistry between normally his male lead and his female lead is, is so impressive because mm. it's organic and, and I know there's a lot of um, ad-libbing and improv if you watch the little behind the scenes stuff it's basically like a very loose direction of what he's supposed to be doing and then it's just Mark Ruffalo kind of taking the wheel with a couple of lines. Well, this is this is what I was going to say is like you make a great point in that yes, so much of it is his casting ability. But from that point once they're cast and that's the old saying is casting is 90% of a director's job when done right is uh, you know, that's Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley just doing their thing and and I I did read that they spent like a lot of time together before shooting just to build that chemistry and so it's like that's all on them and that that's across the board for all the films i feel like yeah well when you get your two leads literally falling in love with each other in real life <laughs> in your previous film you have a tough act to follow that is true oh my god you have to watch. is it the swell the season? season you have to watch it it's so bloody good um which is for those who don't know is sort of the the real life follow-up of the the actors and ones and who got together in real life and we see how their lives play out in their sort of touring story but what i love as well about that you know like you said that moment in time that's so important to both their lives is that because we see it so many different times before and after we're introduced to these characters which in and themselves feel like little short films because of how invested you get into mm. each story before it turns into a whole new perspective is when we first meet um greta it's like oh well, what she's just shy she just doesn't want to go up on stage and it takes a long time for you to realize like oh she's literally just coming off like this really bad horrible breakup and then we just you know we see dan we see mark ruffalo just kind of just standing there like a doofus and then you kind of get his perspective and that leads to one of my favorite things about this film is this moment when he's watching the stage and he's watching her perform and it's, the film kind of presents it as like his superpower, something yeah. he can only do when he's drunk that nobody else can do but him, is so to visualize. Song, a step he can't take back. It's the name of the song. That yes, yes, thank you. Correct. Um, that he watches that, and all the instruments sort of come to life, and he can hear the arrangements all. Yeah, and it's the one time we actually see a, a degree of, well, like you said, surrealism almost mm. in that aspect, which is so. Um, well, at this point, is something we wouldn't have seen in a Carney film because once is purely just in the world. You get very all... cinema verite and, and that's, grounded. That's it. And um, whereas this is the first time we see a little bit of that stylism, and that does carry over. He he obviously uses it sparingly. It's the only time you see something like that in this film. Mm. And then in Sing Street, the only time you see it is in the Drive It Like You Stole It number, where they go into yes. that sort of dream. Uh, basically a dream sequence yeah. yeah a dream music video basically yeah yeah and it's i mean i don't want to spoil i mean that's like my high i love that scene i think that scene yeah. is impeccable it's awesome and that was the thing that like when i first watched the film I was like oh that's just so cool yeah it's it's a clever doing... way of presenting what a character is seeing without saying anything yeah and that way like when the film progresses and he's sort of furiously trying to convince everyone including Greta herself that your music is capable of like this level of production and then these arrangements we understand the frustration when nobody believes in him essentially because like well, we we heard exactly and it's like we just heard it and we, it's like oh this sounds awesome and that but yeah I'm a little surprised because they do make that line of you know oh it's a thing I have and it's it's only when I'm drunk that it never really comes back into play and it's that thing of 
I have no problem with it not coming back into play. I just found it weird. They almost set it up as like, oh, this is going to play. This is going to play yeah, a few I, more times. I in think, the story. to be honest, it, it's part of obviously establishing Dan's character and how does someone have a super duper successful record label? Yeah, that's true. And how do they, you know, and that's what he has. He went in with a partner, and we obviously get a little bit of closure on that when they go to. I'm not sure what his name is, but they go to his house. He's one of oh, the, like the DJ guy, um, uh, Trouble Gum. Yeah, played by CeeLo Green. Um, and he sort of talks to Greta about how much heart Dan, he Dan's looked it after his people. Yeah, and and I think that that's a really obviously we start to see sort of the payoff for that. And like you said, it. I think he says it's drunk. Like, oh, he can only see it when he's drunk, but that's just not true because of what happens when they conceive the album. It's it's almost... That's part of his sort of multifaceted insecurities. Like, he's only drinking as much as he is because he's miserable, mm. his life's a mess, he's in shambles. In the second half of the film, yeah, he's, he drinks, but he doesn't get drunk at all. Right. It's almost the moment they conceive, we're going to go do this album in the world, that becomes, like, his focus. Like yeah, it, I guess it could just a, be an excuse of, like, this is... I'm come to sort of day drinking I'm, I'm just drinking all the time and like well I need to because I need to for this reason it could yeah, just be this, that thing absolutely I think that's kind of what it is because okay. in the second half of the film you know he like I said he, he still drinks but it's that aspect of of that he, he has the creative spurt, he has the spark the energy yeah. the drive and and that's something that you know it doesn't matter what artist you are like if you find yourself in a slump whether that's your finding yourself in a repetitive job or you've had emotional taxing aspects, you can find yourself in that rut and you think, oh, well, if I let loose a bit, and mm. let, that'll be the way to activate that superpower. But that's just not how it works, really. Yeah. It's no, denial. I, I'm with you. I think it's more like that. that's his excuse at that moment. Yeah. Because the, at the when they go to the sort of the rap party after they finish recording the album, they make a point of he's trying to go sober. I think he's drinking like a lemon drink or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of part that's of his arc. Circle. There you go. It's beautiful. The one thing I love, there's so many little details in the... Like you said, there's that surrealistic element where the instruments play themselves. But he does it multiple times purely just for the soundtrack. And a lot of it is those things we talked about, those mistakes that are sort of left in the soundtrack, the um, the mic scratches and the glass sort of clinking and smashing, or the dishes clinking and smashing, especially when we first hear... Um, music or in the bar i should say and then that of course extends out to when they're in the alleyway and there's that little moment where dan goes to to grab the headphones and the sound completely shifts when he puts the headphones on so we're getting that sort of audio perspective which is something you'll probably see in i guess a quiet place when you go from a non-deaf character to a deaf character's perspective the sound just completely changes on a cut um yeah I i loved all of that i thought it just added so much texture to the it's so cool it is, yeah. It's a cool film, isn't it? Well, like, I think the thing is, there's all these aspects that we talked about earlier with the Hollywood actors and the American setting and, and this and that and blah, 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 that may, potentially could make it feel more corporate than these other films. And I think what it is is it's just those little details and textures in the soundtrack Yeah. that is like, oh, this feels scrappy because it's not like a super clean audio that's coming out for the film because, you know, the audience wants clean audio. And it's like, no, 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 it's scrappy because the characters are making something that's scrappy and that's the whole point. 
So it's all going to be translated in the soundtrack. So I think the only, the only other major thing I, I would bring up is mm. breaking down that sort of Lost Stars final sequence sure. of the film. Because um, obviously Adam Levine's character of... of, of um, what's his name? Steve? Was it Cole? Uh, Dave Cole. Dave Cole. He's got a, he's got a Steve, Steve type of face. <laughs> um, Dave obviously comes back and he's, you know, he's uh, changed the the moustache into a beard because he's <laughs> edgy and hipster now. Yeah. Um, obviously has this sort of, basically gets chewed out by Kira Knightley's character and mm. kind of takes it all on the chin. Um, and there's this kind of this moment, obviously, where it's like, you know, he's extending, he's sort of saying, look, oh, oh baby, I've changed. I'm, yep. I'm never going to do this to you. Come <laughs> to my show. Because um, I'm just a skater boy. Um, but yeah, look, that's basically what he's doing. And what's interesting, I like that how that scene plays out and her just ripping what he's done to the, the Lost Stars song, her song for him, yeah. and turned it into this overly produced mess. Um, which leads to that, that final sequence being kind of really important because we get the that... The one where she's watching the performance on stage. Yeah, because it's a real unsung scene, I think, because and it really shows just how good her performance throughout the film is. And I'm not a Kira Knightley super fan or anything. Mm. I'm generally find her fine yep. in a lot of things. But in this particular film, I, what I loved about that sequence was how many different emotions she goes through as we cut back and yeah. forth between Levine. With no words, no, no dialogue at all. No, no. and because he's singing, you know, he's singing this really beautiful... You know, really beautiful song about like the third or fourth rendition of it. We've heard at this point, yeah, and until yeah. its completion, and like you said, it comes back to the organic, diegetic audio. You know, there are people shouting out, which if you listen to the version on Spotify, like you can still hear it's those people there. shouting, cool. which yeah. is really cool. But obviously, that point where she chooses just to sort of ride off into the night with this, into face, the nightly, into the nightly, um, <laughs> and have that 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 beautiful moment where she's got all the really nice lights around her. She's cycling through. Uh, the Manhattan foreshore, mm. and we obviously cut to, and it's that closing sequence. But what it's interesting is it's her fully closing the door. But I love just how many expressions she has. She goes from like almost falling in love with him again, and then falling out of love with him again in that yeah. same scene. Yeah, no, it's true because even watching it that second time and like remembering, it was funny because the thing I really remembered about the ending was the whole um, you know upload the album online. Ah, which doesn't even happen until after the credits. The credits it literally cut to directed by John Carney. I was like, "What? Did I imagine that?" And then it then it played. So I forgot. But I was like, I was pretty sure she doesn't get back with him. But to your point, the emotion she runs through my every two seconds, I'm like, "Oh, she's gonna do this." No, 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 wait, she's thinking this. So it's like it's all very expressive and it's all very dynamic and changing as the song and- plays out. And well, tell me, is it, what do you think is like that final thought bubble? In her head, what's the final thing that makes her walk away? I think it's her accepting just how far away she is from him, and it's that idea of, of you know, in the the last scene we saw these two sharing together, they were you know sitting on, uh, they were either sitting on the steps listening to her mm. uh, newly produced album. That's still yep. a very intimate. Cl- they're close, and at the start of the song, there's this moment where the camera pushes in where it almost feels like she's starting to get close to him again. Okay. And then it starts to pull away as the song sort of progresses, as we start to see a little bit more of her, like, accept that 
she does love him and she probably will never not love him to some extent, mm. but she's done with this chapter and needs to move forward and, and really find what's next for her because she has gone through pretty much you know all of those stages of grief and come out the other end and her riding into the night is that sort of uh, her almost like to an extent because she doesn't go home this is the thing mm. like she doesn't go back to the, the UK so part of it is I think she's now fallen in like, she's embraced her life here for now and, and she's embraced who she is as a person it's just a full completion arc in that sense and I think mm. that it's really good in a way because obviously it's intercut with what happens to you know Dan's clearly trying it again getting, with his wife. Back with the wife, yeah. Um, he's repaired his relationship with his daughter. Miriam is her name, I should um, say. And uh, yeah, it's it's a hopeful ending. I think and- so too, and and it kind of goes to what we were saying earlier, where when they when you know Greta and Dan had things that they needed to get out of each other during this process, and for her it was sort of a sense of identity, uh, and like to have her voice back. And I think in that moment she realizes like fully and and full-heartedly that I don't need Dave Cole to help me find my voice. Like that's yeah. my song he's singing up on stage and it's like like okay, he's doing the song justice and like I still love him and like you said he's she's going through all those emotions, but I think ultimately she's like, well, the song's like it's out there now yeah. and I I don't need it. I have I just built something myself with all my new friends. I've got that. And I think that's is that not where she goes straight away when she's riding into the night? Is that not the first place she goes to is Dan's apartment to say, let's upload the album online? Yeah. Yeah, there's probably there's probably a truth in that, I reckon. Maybe yeah. that's a, maybe that's right. Um It's so interesting. I think he's the best at trying to get musicians to act. Like he turns musicians into actors, and obviously mm. Knightley is an actor first and foremost, but yeah. it's the ability to even in that sequence with what he's working with when he's working with Adam Levine um, and getting him to, he kind of goes through a flurry of emotions too. He thinks he's kind of got her back on, on side at the start mm. of the song. And then there's that aspect of showmanship that he like acknowledges her and then continues to perform. And then when he looks back, there's this kind of moment of just pure emptiness hitting him that, mm. At this point, I don't think he had fully accepted the repercussions of his actions until that moment she's not at the door. Mm. And that's the real moment where it sinks in for him. Um, And there's that aspect, I guess, of, you know, he says, oh, well, you should be excited. You know, you're being credited for the song and this and that. And I think he was excited about that being something that still glues them together. And when she walks away and he, yeah, he gets that sense of emptiness. It's like, oh, nope, the song wasn't enough. Nothing's enough. I've lost her. I messed up and... That's it. And, that's it there. And, and if anything, the song is now a token of his mistake. Yeah. And that's kind of, I mean, it's what he deserves as a character. Yeah. And I guess he's in an asshole life, in real life too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it is interesting because it is such a powerful sort of song. Mm. But what I love about what he does, and I, I th- always think back to that scene in, in Once with when um, Margaret, was it Margaret? Margaret? Inglover, in- check. I think it is. Um, is Marquetta Inglover? Yeah, yeah. Um, As girl is is singing um, <laughs> the hill on the piano piece on the piano, yeah. and she breaks down crying like part through it. And there's just such an interesting way how he manages to fold emotions. And in this one, it's like you know 
we get to hear Lost Stars in its, like I said, so many different renditions that all have different emotional implications on characters in the world. And that's such a powerful narrative tool too. Mm, I mean, the first time yeah. we see it is them recording it in a bedroom, but there's this intimacy. There's a, there's a, a, lo- a pure love there and a bit of cheekiness to it. Mm. And it's so warm and endearing. And then by the, obviously by the time it gets to that overproduced mess, it's like, it's shameful what that song was then reconceived with. And then we find yeah. a kind of a middle point between the two at the end, but it's... yeah, which, which I think works well for, for that, that context. And, and as well, just that whole thing of it becoming overproduced and the, her decision to upload the album line for a dollar, which is, you know, ingenious market. It goes back to, um, I mean, this is what a lot of people say that are very artist friendly and, and protective of artists is like, you, you're better off selling, 10,000 copies of your own thing by yourself than selling 10 million copies of something through like a distributor. You're, you're more statistically likely to make more money by, by doing that. So the whole the whole film is really very anti-authoritarian or very anti, you know, music labels and records and things like that. Of Again, going back to that scrappy heart of it all is just do it yourself. I love it. scrapper myself, I love it. <laughs> you don't need others to, to do the thing. No, you don't need all the money in the world to be making just a nice, good film. I mean, this this film could easily... You take all the star power out of this film and it would still stand on its own two feet. I yeah. have the utmost faith and belief in that. I would um, love to see that version of this film with a bunch of nobodies. Yeah. Like you go the same, the exact same route. Yeah. But it's one of those things, I mean, would it feel a little... It would still be different enough from once, I think. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, geographically and the visuals of it and... What's your favourite song? Favourite song? Um, God, I do love the rooftop mix of... um, Oh, God. Um, I don't know what that song's called. I just had it on my document I deleted it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know that the if you, uh, tell me if you want to go home yes that's the one I'm thinking of yeah yeah that's the one I've listened to the most like when driving around and that's been on my playlist in the car um, I have Lost Stars and but a step you can't take back with the probably... the extra arrangement in there is awesome yeah especially as that that scene plays out because it's not just the mu- like obviously the invisible musician it all comes in slowly it's her acting in that scene that's another okay. example you know when she starts talking about like basically how her boyfriend cheated on her there's that venom when she's singing mm. it and it's like in her expressions and i just love it that they push into that punch into that close-up of her talking about like uh, yeah. implying someone was on their knees and it's like <laughs> kind of like Ooh, there's venom in that. There's pain, and it's like so good. The other thing I love, and it goes back to sort of that uniquely textured soundtrack, is that track. Tell me if you want to go home. Is there's certain sort of lesser arrangement versions of that track peppered throughout the film as they're sort of assorting their team together and they're meeting people, and you know they're in the living room writing or the the apartment mm. room writing the songs down and sort of putting it all together and they got the um is it the jag which is the van with all the the studio mm. stuff all sort of plugged in there which is really clever it's like a little batmobile in a way um i love that the arrange that song is like sort of slowly coming together as those scenes are playing so i can understand it being a little repetitive because we do hear a version of that song like four or five times throughout the film 
but I do like the implication of like alongside the characters, it's slowly being built and built to what it ends up becoming on the rooftop. And it like it's like a village. Like they, mm. they it's it kind of comes back to he bribes um, those kids to <laughs> to do some backing vocals. Yeah. <laughs> was it? Was it uh, a cigarette? Gave him a yeah, cigarette. cigarettes. I love it. The dollar wasn't gonna work. Jake, what was your highlight scene? So, my highlight scene has nothing to do with any of my highlight songs that we just talked about. I actually don't even know what the name of the track is, but it's the scene when... And it, it kind of is juxtaposed right next to that initial Lost Stars performance she does for Dave. Um, when he goes to LA for a bit, he comes back. Oh, there's the quote. It's not about you, but it's for you. That is the quote that she says in the film. The scene after that, when he comes back, and it's, oh, how was your trip? How's it going? And there's sort of this tinge of awkwardness. And then he's like, oh, I wrote a new song. And he plays the song. Oh. And she immediately, like, clicks onto, he found someone else. That's not me he's sinning about. And again, another example of her performance where she's just, the realisation is just sinking on her face so quickly. And um, it's great. That's it's great. just great. Because it's like, you just you, hit. you're not even acknowledging the music in that moment. You just need her face to understand what's going on. But I, that's such, this is such a great idea. Of, like, getting dumped by a song. And he says, he's like, oh, you're so bloody smart, or whatever whatever the line is, where he, he generally didn't expect her to pick up on it that quickly. That I she th- knows him that well. I think, and this is this has been a long time, okay. but <laughs> I seem to remember that particular scene was a really big influence in sort of how the Home Again reveal goes. Right. Well, Because the- I feel like I watched this film and was like, I love... Because I completely blanked over that right now, because it's been so long since I've thought about that scene. Yeah. But there's the the aspect of that in Home Again when she's reading the realizing you're getting dumped, not not being told you're getting dumped, but through yeah. an external means. Yeah. Yeah, and and she has that kind of moment where I think I obviously it's way more obvious, but there's a I think there is a very similar thing because he's a God. I forgot what is he? He's a musician, isn't he? He is. I think. No, yeah, it's song lyrics. She finds a notebook that's with the song lyrics, lyrics, and that's how... Yeah, you ripped this movie off, Zeke. I did. I did. Um, yeah, that was it. She finds... That is... Yeah. It, not ripped off. Influence. Oh, yes. It's completely... Tarantino uh, over here, yes. <laughs> but that's it. That, that was a direct... I guess, yeah. I mean, it's, it's close. It was basically the way of doing it without having to produce a song. <laughs> that was yeah, no, fair writing, enough. Writing the lyrics. Even though you did have an original song in that film during the credits. I did. Oh, the song in the end of that's so really go. good. It is a hard cut to black. I'll give you that. Yeah. But a little <laughs> bit more dire, that film. Oh, um, it is. It is. Well, I, there's one thing I want to talk about. I'll let you tell me your highlight scene first before we okay. get into that. Um, oh, that's a great highlight scene and one that, oh, like you said, is absent from music. I, I would have to say, if I wasn't going to pick the a step you can't take back from Dan's perspective, okay, which is uh, an immaculately blocked scene that kind of ties everything together. Yeah, I'll go with them walking around the city doing the split headphone. Yeah, track. I love the gorilla style. The this, it feels like they just ran out on the street and shot it, yeah. And it's just, you know, as, as someone who really does actually like that style of filmmaking where it does feel, like you said, almost a bit illegal. Like, like <laughs> they, they cut all the red tape out and they're just going and making a movie, which I'm still a big advocate for. Um, 
I, I just love that aspect. It came back to the once world where we're watching boy busking on the street and oh, yeah. having a random... And the camera like slowly pushes. Yeah. Oh, you're right, the initial one where it gets yeah. robbed. And it's just so cool because that's so clearly just... They and if you watch the behind the scenes, they literally just went to the middle of Dublin and went, "We're shooting here." We'll ask the shop front. That's it. Like all of these, these none of these are extras. They're just people in the world. Mm. Very gorilla. Um, I, I like love it. it. I just love it. And it's such a, <laughs> like I said, it's a beautiful scene that kind of underpins this romantic tension between the two, but also kind of perfectly encapsulates sort of the idea of falling in love again and, and regaining that sense of intimacy. It's almost a, a call to action for both characters to start repairing themselves mm. um, and repairing the relationships with themselves and with other people. I um, like that. Yeah. Very good. But So I wanted to quickly just bring this up because this was a bit of research that I had done. I wanted to find out the motivation for John Carney of why did he go from you know this sort of Tiny, low-budget film, feels like a documentary, Dublin, musicians before actors film, to this kind of film. And I didn't really get any real explanation out of it, but what I did find was the reason that he went back to that with Sing Street. Mm. And that is, he very famously talked about how he hated working with Kira Knightley. And really? he basically went on a thing, and I think the line is that um, he didn't like working with supermodels and that's why he went back to casting sort of unknowns relatively unknowns for sing street which he eventually went on to apologize for the comments sort of disparaging her um and then apparently uh kira knightley replied and said that she was not shocked because they did not get along well during filming so that is very interesting to know interesting yeah. Well, she's. I like her performance in it. I have no. I have nothing to say about her. performance. Yeah, no, I like. You said, there's several moments where she's just like, you know, busting out those acting chops and yeah, <laughs> those dialogueless, teary-eyed scenes. She's great. She's fantastic. Yeah, it is such a. It is. You know, it's always a shame to hear that sort of stuff, and perhaps that's just the way he works. Maybe there's that methodology there. I mean, he is very musically inclined. We mm. kind of see that in the behind scenes for once. And he does have a, a fast and loose uh, point-and-shoot feeling to mm. him. He almost, uh, without saying it, but like a directionless direction sometimes. Like in that right. sense of being like, and you're recording the song. And, and some actors thrive in that, that chaotic sort of, oh, I've got the whole ball and I get to play with it within the, the confines sure. of the character, yeah. which I think Ruffalo, and if you look at some of the, the outtakes, he seems to thrive Ooh, I don't in that. think I've seen the outtakes. There's a, there's a couple of little behind the scenes, particularly that scene in the alley. There's about oh. three or four takes, and he does something like almost completely different every time. Um, and that's quite interesting. So he clearly thrives in that sort of more fast and loose environment. Mm. Maybe certain actors don't. They prefer having that regimented, like, what's my motivation? What are yeah. my lines? I'm, I'm curious specifically what they got into arguments about. Maybe maybe John Carney was very persnickety about what a musician would do in a certain scenario, and Kira Knightley maybe was falling back onto maybe more traditional acting methods, where it's like, yeah. no, well, I need to perform this way because of this, and maybe that's where they just sort of butted yeah. heads. It's hard to tell. 
I, he he really does advocate for that music musician authenticity, doesn't mm. he? he? And that's kind of evident in his uh, once obviously film, and even in Sing Street, where there's a certain he probably deliberately cast kids who he knew could play instruments to a certain yeah. degree. We well, basically missed that. So I stopped casting supermodels. Yeah. So uh, little yeah, I don't know. That kind of that's a shame. It's just a shame to read because like well. You should have known what you were getting into when you hired actors over musicians. Doing the exact opposite of what you did last time, what did you expect? Yeah. And, like, we we both worked with people that we weren't 100% completely satisfied and, like, yeah, I can't wait to work with them again. We wouldn't, like, publicly discuss that and talk about how we hated each other. And no, you just don't work with them. It's just, like... And you... Yeah, I just, that blew my mind a little bit when I read that. A bit taboo. Bit tabooed, just a little bit. Begin again is currently out in wide release. However, I don't believe it's on any streaming platforms. No, you got to rent or buy it online. Uh, the Blu-ray is hard to find. I don't, I don't have it. I don't have it either. Yeah, I so genuinely tried to look for Blu-ray for ages. But what you can do is check out films like Once and Sing Street. We covered both of those. We covered Sing Street episode one hundred and twenty-two, and covered Once way back episode twenty-six. Our original golden chalk top. Winner. Excellent. Well, speaking of all of those interesting films you've just brought up, what are new to cinemas and streaming platforms this week? Things like, it looks like things are winding down a little bit as we get into the serious holiday season. Uh, we've got the final episodes ever of The Crown coming to Netflix this week, season six, part two. So um, I've always wanted to watch it. I've always wanted And it looks fantastic. I've seen clips of it. And uh, I'm very curious to learn more about the royal family. Despite how inaccurate they may claim it is, I, I don't know about that. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited for the show to be wrapped, and I hope it goes out on a strong note. I really do. So we shall see. We've also got the Kevin Hart and Chris Rock headliners only, which I, I guess is a special. It says it gives us behind the scenes look into their friendship and careers. So I, I don't know if it's like a stand up special slash mm. documentary. I don't know what that is. That'll be interesting to see how that you, plays out. You can watch it. Yeah, it sounds interesting enough. Yeah. I don't despise either of them. I find them fine. <laughs> I wonder if they talk about the slap. I'm sure they do. Uh, and finally, coming to Netflix, we've got Chicken Run, Dawn of the Nugget, which sees the gang on a whole new adventure with Ginger and Rocky who must break back into Tweety's farm. So Horror. excited. I It looks great. I'm keen. I'm really keen. I liked with the uh, premiere when they had people interviewing the little puppets. It's been so long since microphone. I watched Chicken Run. So I I rewatched it like a year ago, and it's awesome. It's really really clever, and funny. There you go. It's well done. So I'm I'm excited for this. Um, yeah, long time coming. Never thought I'd see the day. Well, Full on chicken run the sequel day has been seen. It absolutely has. Now we've also got a little film called The Family Plan coming to Apple TV Plus. Sees a former assassin played by Mark Wahlberg living incognito as a suburban dad who must take his unsuspecting family on the run when his past catches up with him. That kind of gives me a little bit of Ozark vibes. Yeah. Just slightly. Hmm, interesting. Oh my god. Oh my god. And coming to cinemas this week, we got Wonka, which sees Timothy Chalamet as a young Willy Wonka in his origin story. It is from Paul King, the director of Paddington Bear. That's promising. That is promising and good reviews. Surprisingly good reviews. There we go. So, uh... Maybe he's, um, yeah. Mr. King's just very good at uh, shooting childhood films. I think the casting's really good. I like him as Willy Wonka. I do too. 
It's just like, it felt so studio when they announced this. And the trailer came out and it was like generic trailer. Yeah, it is a very generic trailer. But yeah, I mean, that's just the trailer. Could play out completely different in the film. So I'm weirdly excited about this as of late. So we shall see how that goes. We've also got The Invisible Guest, which is a Mandarin film in which young and beautiful entrepreneur Joanna is accused of being the culprit in a locked room murder case where the victim is her lover. Mm, a little spicy, a little bit tense. spicy. And Beyond Utopia combines interviews with secretly shot footage as several families attempt to escape oppression in North Korea. Ooh, that got serious real quick. That got very serious. Oh my goodness. And I do believe... Yeah, well, it's a documentary, secretly shot footage, so there you go. I love... It's kind of like For Sama, where it's like... Yeah. It's like, oh my God, some of the stuff that... They're just distributing out to the world. I mean, but that's it. We live in that age, don't we? We just all the horrors are out there. We certainly to see. do. And finally, Combi Man is a documentary where a man in a race against time goes on a fun-filled adventure to find a combi van, revisit his hippie youth, and explore the meaning of life. That sounds like a bit of fun. It's a fun doco. Yeah. So I guess I guess that would be Luna. I suppose that doesn't yeah. sound like a Hoyts. No, job. sounds like Luna. But that is everything coming to streaming and cinemas this week. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, but Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, Zeke, we're watching Burlesque. How much to Los Angeles? One way or a round trip? You're kidding, right? here in my mirror because I've never seen anything like this before. Great enthusiasm, terrible timing. Ali leaves her job as a waitress to pursue a career on stage. After failing the audition, she wanders into a club where after a long struggle, she not only becomes the lead dancer, but also a singer. It's a... Hmm, interesting. Yeah. A little, little bit in there to give you a Well, there's some, there's, there's some surprises on that episode. There are. So, um, like you said, Zeke, you're traveling later this week. Certainly am. I bid you a very safe trip to Europe. Thank you. Sounds epic. I look forward epic. to it. It is going to be epic. It's going to be good, but you're going to be away for a few weeks. A number I of weeks. am. So, in the standard procedure, we obviously <laughs> didn't want to leave you without any content. No, we can't uh, do in that. In this run home. So, obviously, we had to arrange a couple of pre-records we did that will be gracing you over a certain period of time they're not going to we might as well forewarn it yeah i've got like the whole schedule laid out we can um, give everyone the, the detailed there analysis. are going to be episodes being released fortnightly twice yes so here's the schedule because we so you by the time you get back our traditional weekly schedule would dictate that the show would be done that we'll get to 260 and that'll be done. But that's we can't do that. We can't pre-record the final episode. Yes. So what we've done is we pre-recorded the following three episodes. So next week we'll do Burlesque. That will come out a week from now, the 18th of December. And what's especially fun about that episode is we're going to have not one, but two guests on it. Uh, who are we having, Zeke? We're having our girlfriends. A girlfriends. The girlfriend episode. So for the first time ever, both Kirsty and... Yep. 
uh, Lucinda will be joining us on a four-person podcast, which is the first uh-huh. time we've done it. A long, 12. long, long time. Exactly. Um, and that'll be really good because um, Kirsty was the one who picked Burlesque, mm. but that happens to be one of Lucinda's favourite films. So it's out pretty well. A lot of talking. I yeah. Imagine. So it's uh, very exciting for everyone to meet the girlfriends, you know, through the yeah. podcast. Now, the week after that, we're going to be doing a Christmas movie. We won't say which one just yet, but that does drop on, believe it or not, the 25th of December. That's pretty cool. So that is very exciting. The only time we've ever had an episode drop on Christmas Day. So that is pretty cool. Now, like you said, Zeke, the following episode after that, so episode 259 will release two weeks after that on the 8th of January. We'll be having another guest on then, a very special guest. We'll find out soon enough. And then two weeks after that, which I will just confirm is the 22nd of January, will be a live recording. We, that won't be a pre-record. That will like be a our, normal recording. Normal recording, our final ever Cinema Sideshow podcast. I, I can't wait for us to be more vocal about the film we're doing. Because mm. I've purposely been telling less and less people like, as we get to the end of the schedule, what's the final film? I don't think I've told a lot of people what it is, so... Yeah, so that's very exciting. Obviously, that will be um, the end of Season 5, end of the show, but also... Yes, Golden Chop Top, Stale Popcorn. Golden Top and Stale Popcorn Awards, which is always a good one. Mm. It's going to be a good year, I reckon. It'll be an epic last episode, but that's a few weeks away, so don't worry it about is. that yet. The journey's not over. We'll get there. We'll get We're there. simply at another train stop on the way down the <laughs> line. Until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideship Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Burlesque.